Hello, greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us, and we're so glad you're interested in spiritual things. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, and Genesis 2:24, we read that when God made people, He made male and female in His image, and He commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. And He decreed in the garden. And a man will leave father and mother, cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Throughout the Old Testament, marriage and procreation were normative. In fact, uh, if you were unmarried or to have no children was considered cursed. Uh, Joseph was blessed because he saw Ephraim's children of the third generation in Genesis 50 23. In Ruth 1, we meet Naomi, who has lost. Uh, not only her husband, but her two sons, and only has a widow, uh, Ruth, who comes with her. He, she attempts to get uh, the her daughters-in-law to leave her because she cannot provide for them. And when she gets back to the land of Judah, she says that the Lord has dealt very bitterly with her, that she left full and has come back empty because she does not have a husband or sons. In Psalms 127, 3 through 5, and 128, 1 through 6, we see the, the blessings that would come with a wife and children, and that to not have those things would be considered one who was not blessed. Like in 2 Samuel 13, 19, and 20, the condition of Tamar after she was raped, uh, as a barren and desolate in the household of her, her brother Absalom, and, and also in 1 Kings 4 and in verse 25 as well. So marriage is and procreation are very normative in the Old Covenant, partly because the Old Covenant is very physical. Uh, but one can establish a very strong theology of sexuality as well. In John 17, 20-23, Jesus prays that uh, the disciples, all of us, may be one as, uh, with him as, as he is one with the Father, that the Father is in him and he is in the Father, that we may be in them and they in us. The idea there is what we call perichoresis, or uh, mutual indwelling, where two uh, persons are mutually indwell, yet do not lose the distinctiveness and personhood. Uh, and when we think about that in terms of humanity, what relationship most closely approximates that? Well, when a man and a woman, uh, being two, become one flesh, in Matthew 19, 4-6. And in fact, this analogy of spiritual sexual intimacy and spiritual intimacy is made explicit in Ephesians 5, 31-32, where Paul quotes Genesis 2:24 and then says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying, refers to Christ and the Church. So there's all of this positive views of sexuality going on in the uh, in the Bible, and uh, we don't want to diminish that or discount that, but we also don't want to take it too far because Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, the Word of God and God the Son, did not take a wife and did not procreate, according to the pages of the New Testament. And it seems very strange if that sexuality is this very big and important thing. And the way that we kind of understand the intimacy that we're supposed to have with God in, in, in a very dim way, that some, you'd expect that Jesus himself would model that, but yet he doesn't. So why is that? There's lots of reasons that we have to, can perhaps can consider. But we'd like to suggest that it's really his resurrection, the hope of resurrection, that's really the game changer. This is not the time and place of a really in-depth lesson about the resurrection. Uh, there's other times and places for that. But for the purpose of our understanding, uh, we should look to Romans 8, 17-25, 1 Corinthians 15th chapter, and 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5, where Paul kind of lays out what a lot of this means in terms of the resurrection. Uh, for our purposes t 
in our conversation, we need to recognize in the resurrection, resurrection means a raising again. So a, the body that has died must be raised again, and it will be raised and transformed for immortality, incorruption, and perishability in 1 Corinthians 15, 51-58. That sin and death will be defeated. They're not going to be there anymore in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28. That the creation will be set free from its bondage of corruption in, in Romans eight seventeen through 25 and this is not just a future hope. It is a future hope in many ways. But those of us who are in Christ are reckoned as new, part of the new creation in 2 Corinthians 5, 14-21. That we've obtained the reconciliation with God that's going to allow for that resurrection and for that life. So we get to begin participating in it now. And the reason why the resurrection is so important is because the resurrection has implications for sexuality as well. In Matthew chapter 22... And the story is also told in Mark 12 and Luke 20. That one of the, the Sadducees come to Jesus. And they say there's no resurrection in verse 23. And they ask Jesus a question. They say, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So here Jesus says, in the resurrection, people are not married or given in marriage. And the multitudes were just astonished at this teaching. The Sadducees got your question. They probably used that many times. Probably loved watching Pharisees squirm when, when it was mentioned. And, and here the, 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 the Pharisee kind of tried to bumble out some kind of answer. But it presumes something. It presumes that since sexuality is part of the life here, it's going to be part of the next life, which in the resurrection would be a very natural thing to expect. And that's why in one verse we should be astonished at this teaching as well, because Jesus is forcing us to reconsider a lot, that marriage and procreation are part of this life. That we will have no need to be fruitful and multiply in the resurrection. That that multiplication takes place here, in the proving grounds, so to speak, of this life. And understanding this answer of Jesus in the resurrection, we're neither married nor given in marriage, it provides an explanation for some of the other teachings that he has. Previously in Matthew chapter 19, after talking about the reason uh, for, about divorce with the Pharisees, uh, the disciples, uh, when they hear that the only reason you can divorce your spouse is for sex and behavior, they say, if it's such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry Yet Jesus says to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who are made, who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. The idea of being a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven is to renounce sexuality and reproduction in the name of Jesus as a means of obtaining the resurrection. 
It also explains his own behavior. He will obtain eternal life in the resurrection. And, and in the very real sense, the wife that he will have, quote-unquote, will be the church. And he will commune with her for eternity. In Ephesians 5, 23-33, Revelation 21, 1-22-6. And we have to hesitate to make it clear that that does not mean Jesus is marrying any individual one of us. It does not mean that any of us are Jesus' boyfriend, in any, or that Jesus is our boyfriend in any real way of that term being understood. That we need to be careful about love songs to Jesus. Uh, that this is a metaphor, and it, we need to be careful to keep it a metaphor, but yet recognize the power of that metaphor. The resurrection is a game changer. It's changed everything. And, therefore, it forces us to reconsider sexuality in light of the resurrection. And part of the reason we need to do this is because the Christian witness about sexuality has been rather schizophrenic over the centuries. And, and we do not say this to discount the struggles of those who may suffer from schizophrenia, but the very idea of schizophrenia is of somebody who's of two or more minds. And that's exactly the way Christian witness has tended to be about sexuality over time. When we see the early centuries of Christianity, there's a Great, one extreme, and that's the great celebration of celibacy and virginity. Uh, we see in First Corinthians seven, Paul commending virginity as a, I mean, celibacy as as better than marriage. That not that marriage is not good, but that it is a lesser good. And in the early church, the, they replaced the heroes of the gladiatorial realm, the heroes of the mythology, with the heroes of the saints. And many of those saints that they so called uh, considered to be heroes were very celibate and zealous for it. And there are many stories of women renouncing sexual participation with their husbands. Um, even though Paul says that they should give their due, uh, that was these, these women got just whipped up into a frenzy about this. Uh, we see this leading to uh, the he- her- heroism being ascribed to those who were celibate and fought Satan. Uh, the monks and the nuns and, and, and vows of, of chastity, uh, celibacy were considered very... Uh, very spiritual, very holy, and given a lot of credence. Um, and, and the body in that light was uh, diminished in value, expected to be suppressed. Uh, the idea that an elder or bishop should be a, a husband of one wife and have children in first Timothy chapter uh, 3 was set aside. And sexuality would later be further tainted by association with original sin, and therefore too dirty to be holy. And so that caused uh, great suspicion about sexuality, uh, the belief that even where sexuality was tolerable, it was still a dirty business. That was the attitude then. It seems in recently, because perhaps of the sexual revolution, because of other factors going on, uh, the church has done a complete 180, at least Christian witness in our culture, uh, where there's a great celebration of marital sex and procreation, continued teaching, and also cultural expectation and pressure for all young people to be married and have children. And especially those among the influenced by the Quiverful movement, uh, a lot of pressure imposed have a lot of children as well. And a lot of emphasis is placed particularly on procreation. And as we now see all kinds of t- uh, arguments and debates about gay marriage, there's a, a special tendency to want to really emphasize procreation uh, because that's going to be one of those distinguishing markers. And there's a place to that, but we've got to be careful with it because as a consequence, and we see this in churches today, Paul's teaching, prizing singleness as a greater good than marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, are suppressed. 
marginalized and even denied and rejected. A lot of a lot of times people will try to go to First Corinthians seven and talk about the current and present distress uh, that that Paul is mentioning there and try to use that as a means by which to suggest everything that Paul's talking about in that chapter was really a first century issue uh, and does not reflect the situation of Christians uh, from then on out. Even though, really, even there he's talking the. the that that challenges life itself, and we all have that challenge. The present distress is very short for all of us, and uh, all the principles that Paul says in that passage are as true today as they were then. The difference is that now the church has embraced the sexualization of culture, uh, whereas back then they fully rejected it. There's no space, and, and because of this, there's this expectation that a good Christian is going to try to be an elder, and a good Christian is going to have uh, be married and have children. Uh, so if you're a Christian who's not married, you're looked upon suspicion and marginalized in the community of saints. There's no place or room given in the church for those who are single or divorced. And even beyond that, the infertile are left to feel incomplete and as moral failures, because they have not had children. And the problem that we have with these extremes is that there's grounds for both of them in the pages of the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 19, 4 through 6, Jesus points out uh, many important truths. Uh, talking about divorce, certainly, but in order to talk about divorce, he's talking about an important principle of what God intended. And, and he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall love his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In 1 Corinthians 7, 2 itself, Paul says, Because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And in verse 5, 9, But uh, it, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. In Hebrews chapter 13, and verse 4, the Hebrew author has a, a similar message. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. So, marriage to become one flesh, and, and even after the resurrection, 1 Corinthians here in Hebrews, it's good. It's, it's, it's honorable. Uh, there's no problem with it. And in fact, the very same Paul in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 expects elders and deacons to be married and have children. In those passages, he's a husband of one for life, and he's kept his children in, in subjection. And, uh, and, yeah. Some people just want to act as if, well, if he is married, he should have one, as if that's an optional requirement. But Paul never suggests that. He expects them to do that. He doesn't expect everybody to be an elder. And so it's not wrong for people to aspire to be an elder. Uh, I don't want anybody thinking otherwise. On the other hand, that's not going to be the path for everybody. And you can be a great Christian in the kingdom and never serve as an elder. Paul did. Paul was a great Christian, never served as an elder. And that's something we need to keep in mind, and we, uh, that we can't just expect everybody to be doing everything, that there's different parts from different roles in the body. In Matthew 19.12, on the other hand, as we read, there are those who will make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And in 1 Corinthians 7, 6-9, when Paul talks about 
Uh, he's just talked about that, okay, you know, let a man have a wife and a wife and a woman have a husband. But then he says, I, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them not to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And verses 24 through 38, Paul will continue to make the same argument that in whatever condition you're called, that's the way you should remain. That those who um, marry will have trouble. There's, there's the trouble in the marriage relationship. And um, the present form of this world is passing away. That's why we need to be careful about what we're doing. Uh, to be free from anxieties. If you're married, you are anxious about your wife and, and, and things of that nature. If you're unmarried, you can only be anxious to please the Lord. Uh, the husband has and wife has to have divided loyalties. Um, but So if you marry, it's okay, but it's better if you can remain single and devote yourself fully to the kingdom. So all of this is there in the New Covenant. So what is the New Covenant teaching about sexuality in light of the resurrection? And the thing is about the schizophrenic way this gets handled is that's unfortunate because you can reconcile this. You can harmonize this. There's no inherent contradiction here. Marriage is still something good, rooted not just in the law, but from the beginning in creation. Sex still remains the closest type of perichoretic relational unity that we humans can experience in the flesh. That children are to be born in such a union and raised in Lord's discipline admonition in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. But Paul and, and Paul knows that many are not going to be able to exercise self-control of not burning with passion. And he recognizes that most Christians even will probably get married and have children. That's why elders are married, and you know, deacons can still be required to be married and have children, even if that means that neither Jesus nor Paul would have met those qualifications. However, if those, those who can't exercise self-control and live as eunuchs for the kingdom, who renounce marriage to advance the kingdom, are to be valued and honored, for their hope is fully set in the Lord Jesus and for 1 Corinthians 7, 24-38. So it leads to a, a valid issue. If we can harmonize these kind of disparate teachings, why is this issue so problematic? Why do we see this kind of running to extremes? Well, as New Testament Christians, the resurrection forces us to revise some understandings and expectations that were just the way things were in the Old Covenant and find voice today. And the first one is, what is the end game? What is the hope of life? And this is something interesting when you think about the Old Testament, because a lot of times we like to spiritualize the Old Testament because we live in the New Covenant. But from the beginning until the resurrection of Jesus, what did God's people see as the best-case scenario? And, 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 and the Old Testament is very clear about this. A given person is blessed when they have a fruitful harvest, a wife, children, and grandchildren. So it made Joseph blessed. So it made Solomon, you know, Solomon. Everybody in the day of Solomon lived sat under their fig tree, and that was in First Kings four twenty five, a demonstration of prosperity. In Psalm one twenty seven three through five one twenty eight one through six as well, and we can see this in Job. Job has reached the pinnacle. How has Job reached the pinnacle? He's blessed. He has a wife and children and animals and property. God takes all that away from him except for the wife. And then he's later blessed in chapter forty two because God gave him even more children, animals, and property. Afterlife was Sheol, a place of shades, a place of, of darkness, a place of an underworld, a lot of question marks. It's certainly not a pleasant place, something that anybody was yearning for, as you can see in Isaiah 38, 18, and many other passages. 
uh, a man who was without wife or children was reckoned as cursed. His lineage would be extinguished, his name stricken from the land. So that when the high priest of Israel uh, tells man, uh, Amos he has to quit prophesying and leave, uh, Amos, in the name of Yahweh, prophesies that his wife would become the wife or the whore of another, and that his children would all be killed. That was the, it, the, the, you, you could provide no worse curse than that, because that meant the extinguishing of your line and the ultimate humiliation uh, of your standing. A spinster or childless woman was reckoned as cursed, for she did not perpetuate the people of God on the land. Uh, that's why uh, Naomi felt so bitter in Ruth chapter 1. And Second Samuel 13 with Tamar, and, and the way Tamar was viewed. And this view has returned with resurgence in our own era. It makes sense, because when you lose hope in God and the resurrection, all hope that you've got for immortality centers on DNA and the passing on of genetic legacy. And so if you don't do that, you've not really perpetuated yourself. But that's before the resurrection, or in life without the resurrection. According to Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, the hope of the Christian is the resurrection from the dead. And because of that, we must subject all things to that hope. So Paul makes very clear there in this passage that uh, he talked about all the legacy he had in Judaism, but in verse 8 he calls it, uh, he counts it as lost for the sake of Christ that he counts everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that he has for his sake suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that he may gain Christ and be found in him, uh, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but through that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on for the goal, the prize, the upper call in Christ Jesus. So, Christians must recognize that we need to subject all things, consider all things as rubbish to obtain the resurrection. Sex, procreation are not our salvation. They're not our ultimate blessing. The resurrection is... There is a place and a time to exercise sexuality and to bear children. But it is no longer the goal and purpose of existence. Our hope for the future is in the resurrection. And that is true for all of us if we're in Christ. If we are single, if we are married, if we have children, if we don't have children, our hope needs to be in the resurrection. And that's a radical departure from expectations. And it really shows how much a game changer the resurrection is in terms of the Christian life and understanding. And this informs the limitations that exist in marriage and sexuality. Because as we saw in Matthew 22, in the resurrection, they won't be married nor given in marriage, but will be as angels. And so there can be no expectation of sexual behavior in the resurrection. And to a lot of people, that's disappointing. Uh, if you go to a bookstore and you go to the religion section, you're going to find there's some books that some people have written about heaven question and answer books. And invariably in heaven question and answer books, somebody's going to ask if there's sex in heaven. And there's always this well-meaning answer. Well, hey, sex is a great thing here on earth, and so heaven's full of great things. So, uh, yeah, there'll probably be sex in heaven. And that's uh, so understandable, yet horribly misinformed and misguided. Because... In the resurrection, the fullness of the intimacy and relational unity with God and Christ will be manifest. Paul talks in Nearest for the Day where he will know as he is known. In Revelation 19, 5 through 9, 21, 1 through 22, 6, the consummation of all things, 
here at the end of time, is spoken of in terms of being invited and, and to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And blessed are those who uh, are part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. What happens when the Lamb and the Bride get married? They will share in relational unity. Yes, yes, I know, we need to be careful about that, but that's the whole idea, is that it's showing you that you're going to have the relational unity that has been desired. Marriage and sexuality are not part of the resurrection because God's a killjoy in trying to make sure we have no fun and making uh, the resurrection all about uh, things that are unpleasant in, in, in the way that we would think in the flesh. But actually, uh, the, quite the opposite. Because we're not going to need that glimpse anymore. We're going to have the full reality of which our sexuality has been but a dim part. This is where I think it's appropriate to consider what C.S. Lewis said in The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that's very important to keep in mind in our sex of sex culture, for whom this moment of transcendent experience that you have in sex is the closest to divine experience enjoyed. It's not the end. It is but a glimpse of what God wants to share with us and that we will share with each other for eternity. If we just keep our priorities straight and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he will add everything else we'll need in Matthew 6.33. Marriage is a temporary institution. Full satisfaction is not going to be found in a husband or a wife, or for that matter, in children, but in God and Christ, for whom we seek in Acts 17, 16-27, and with whom we will be fully, uh, that, uh, in Revelation 21, 23-23, that uh, we will be in His presence forever. So, there's so much in Understand the Resurrection that should get us to recognize that marriage is not the end-all and be-all, having children is not the end-all and be-all, and to be very suspicious of any culture that tries to get overly obsessed about sexuality. But on the other hand, it's still the resurrection affirms the importance of the body. The body will be raised and transformed from mortality and corruptibility. Our existence in the resurrection will still be mind in some level, body and soul, 1 Corinthians 15, 15-58, and 2 Corinthians 5, 1-5. That Christians in the church are always in danger of the heresy of Gnosticism, attempting to denigrate the body as intrinsically corrupt and deficient. When people want to denounce the fleshiness of the body, what do they always want to talk about? When we talk about fleshiness, we don't talk about what we eat. We, don't, we may talk about some things we drink, but we're certainly going to talk about sex. Because if there's anything that, that has, in the Christian imagination, become the thing of the flesh, it's sexual desire. And when God denounces worldly things, it's the corruption of the world because of sin and death that is condemned, not the good things he creates. That's why in 1 John 2, 15-17, that definition is so important. That the things in the world, the desire of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, and the pride of life, those are not from the Father, but of the world. It's that sin. It's not what God created to be good. It's sin. Yes, God is spirit in John four twenty four. God has made us in his image. And even in the flesh, he has made us to reflect his divine nature. And we should be able to affirm this typology of sexual intimacy and paracrack relational unity without revulsion. 
it's very difficult for a lot of us because a lot of us have been look at sex as dirty and, and we've we've put God and sex in such radically different categories that we can never imagine that God is trying to teach us something about unity with him through sex. Uh, yet the Song of Solomon is still in Scripture. Okay, we need to keep that in mind. Uh, in Romans one twenty, Paul says that we will see his divine nature in the things that he has created, and we are made in his image. So we're going to see it in there. And we have that revulsion, but that revulsion is something we've inherited because of that uh, going back to Augustine and tainting sex with the uh, transmission from original sin, always making sex dirty, making the body dirty. That, that is not there. So there's both. That's the reason why both extremes get fed in the end is because each extreme will feed on itself because it's taken some distortion of what we see in the new covenant and running with it and trying to diminish or exclude what the other element has to provide. And when you keep this in mind in the resurrection, Jesus is still human. The resurrection body. First Timothy chapter two and verse five, Paul says that he is the human Christ Jesus in the year sixty three. But he still is God the Son and God the Word in John 1 1 and, and, and the fullness of deity in bodily form, Colossians 2 9. So the bodily pres- resurrection proves God is not giving up on his creation. He does not affirm a body soul duality, but he intends his people to dwell with him, body and soul, for eternity. In 1 Corinthians 15 44, the spiritual body is still a body. And God wants us to dwell with him bodily for eternity. So what does this mean? Functionally, what does all this mean? Well, we've got to take the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection in, in, in consideration when we consider sexuality. First, it means we temper our exuberance about sexuality. Because, boy, we've been looking at paracritic relational unity. Wow. In sex, we get that glimpse of the unity God has within himself and which is for us to share with each other and with him in spiritual fullness terms for all eternity. And we get really excited about that and exuberant about it. That God has made man and woman in his own image, that there are parts of the man that are complementary parts of the woman. You can't have a man and a man and get that nature of God and that unity. You can't get one woman and get that nature of God and the unity. That you need each to come together to have that unity. And, and for the two to become one flesh. In Genesis 1, 2, and Matthew 19, that's going to be very important for us to keep affirming as you look at how sexuality has been broken and distorted. But we need to hesitate because it's easy to take that idea to say a man is not complete until he has a woman. A woman is not complete until she has a man. But in light of the resurrection, it's wrong to suggest that because marital sexual union is not the ultimate goal in life, but being unified with Christ is the goal in life. So a, a Christian can be single and in unity with Christ and be full. It does not require that she is she or he is not incomplete because she or he is not married. On account of resurrection, sexuality cannot be the goal of life, and therefore must not be our obsession, that its pursuit must never consume us in Philippians three. Our hope is not to be in marriage, in sex, in children. Those things are good, but they're to be subject to the goal of obtaining the resurrection. That's exactly what Paul does in Ephesians five and six. He talks about how husbands are to love the wives are to submit to their husbands as the church of Mr. Christ. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Children are to be raised in discipline and admonition of the Lord. All of these relationships are to be mediated by matter by the goal of getting into the resurrection. Now, marriage and childbearing are still acceptable, 1 Corinthians 7, and perhaps even expected and normal to a degree in Ephesians 5 and 1 Timothy 3, but they're not mandated Christian behavior. 
that somebody is not cursed if they're not participating in it, and they do not, and on the other hand, being married and having children does not automatically mark somebody off as being faithful to God. And so what this means is, that there is this place that we need to create where we honor those who are not married. Because 1 Corinthians 7 only makes sense in light of the resurrection. Those who are single in the world are not going to be able to reproduce. And so in worldly terms, uh, the book stops there perhaps. But in terms of the resurrection, uh, where our you were looking for unity with God in Christ, and we're going to be in that forever. Uh, those who are willing to renounce the desires of the flesh in order to obtain that resurrection are to be greatly commended and honored, because they're devoting themselves fully to the Lord and to the resurrection. They're not to be despised, they're not to be held in suspicion for making that commitment. The body of Christ must contain, if it's going to be the body of Christ, the single, the widow, the childless, and the divorced. They're to be honored members who find connections and relationships in life among their fellow Christians in 1 Corinthians 7 and chapter 12. Uh, being single should not mean somebody is sentenced to being alone. There's a big difference between being single and being alone. You can be alone and married. You can be alone in the middle of a city of 18 million people. Uh, <clears throat> but you can be single and alone. Well, you can be single and deeply connected with other people in, in meaningful relationships. They just don't happen to be sexual. And so just because somebody is not married does not mean that they don't need connection. They, they, they definitely need connection. They definitely need the, the church to be their family, to be their support system, because they do not have the support system of husband uh, or wife uh, or children. And it's very important for people in the church to recognize that getting people into a sexual relationship is not the goal, that the resurrection is the goal, and that we need to find ways of encouraging single people to be faithful to Jesus, first and foremost. And perhaps secondarily, if those people are interested, to help them find another person to share life with in the Lord. And to keep that priority straight, because a lot of times it does not happen that way. And the resurrection, above all, reminds us that there is a type and a reality, and there's a difference. The intimacy of sexual union between a man and woman may be great. It may be the nearest glimpse we get in this life of that idea of perichoretic unity. But it's only a glimpse. The two become one flesh is only a glimpse. That Jesus has already prayed for us that we may be one in unity as the Father and Son are unity. That we should be in them as they are in each other in John 17, 20-23. The church right now is to be participating in this divine mystery of intimate union between Christ and the church in Ephesians 5, 32-33. So if the glimpse is so great in sex, how much greater will be the fullness of the reality? And that is why, whenever it's talked about in Scripture, it's talked about in such powerful terms. In Romans eight seventeen and 18, that we are joint heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer for Him. And then Paul makes this confident declaration, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In 2 Corinthians four seventeen through 18 that our current travails are but slight momentary affliction in light of the eternal weight of glory which God will give us in the resurrection. And the beautiful picture uh, that is seen in a vision, Revelation 21 uh, and 22, uh, you, you only, precious jewels are the only ways you can start expressing the inexpressible. But he, uh, John does not see a temple in the city. For his temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the God gives us light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And God's presence is with his people. And there is nothing greater or more glorious than the union of God and his people. So our understanding of sexuality has to reflect the transformation that exists in the hope of resurrection.
that marriage and childbearing and the sex that's involved remain good, but they don't represent the pinnacle of blessedness anymore. The resurrection is the goal for Christians. That Christians, married or unmarried, have full standing in Christ, ought to participate and pursue the resurrection, the fullness of intimacy, of which sex is only a glimpse. So as Christians, we look forward to the resurrection, that day on which we will know as we are known, that we will share relational unity with God and with one another, and dwell for all eternity in the glorified resurrection body and soul. And therefore, let us all strive so to obtain it, as Paul has encouraged us to do. We again thank you for, for joining with us, and we hope this has been an encouragement to you. If you've got some questions about some of the things we've talked about, or you'd like to discuss them further, uh, maybe you have a very quest, or you're going through some struggles and you just want to talk. Any way I can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website, deverbalvitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. And if uh, you'd like to learn more about the Church of Christ, so we can serve you, encourage you in some way, and study the Bible with you, please let us know. Find us online at VenturechurchofChrist.org or also on the social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.